Morena, and welcome to the Dawn Chorus. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka. Today I want to talk about the government's accounts, which came out yesterday for the year to, the, to June 30th. They're known as the Crown Accounts, and really it's the final wrap-up of how the government's books are looking. And on the face of it, they're looking much better than everyone expected. So the Obergall, the Operating Balance Excluding gains and losses, which is the main budget deficit number that people look at, that was a deficit in the last year of $4.6 billion. Now, that sounds like a really big number, but actually it was much, much lower than what was forecast for uh, the 2021 year, as recently as May. So back then we were talking about a budget deficit of well over $15 billion dollars. Instead, it ended up being less than $5 billion. And in fact, that is 1.3% of GDP. That is healthier than pretty much any other economy in the world right now. And when you look at the debt that we've taken on in the last year, it's actually about $10, $11 billion less than what we were all expecting. Now, there's a couple of reasons for this better than expected budget deficit. Firstly, the economy grew much more than we expected and unemployment was much lower than was forecast, particularly last year in the depths of the COVID crisis. And that has meant that overall the government's accounts look much better because revenues are higher. So GST, income tax, corporate tax, all much more than expected. In fact, total tax is up more than $15 billion in the last year. Although, obviously, last year was a little bit depressed because of COVID. Now, all of that means that the government's books are looking in pretty good shape. And the finance minister, Grant Robertson, said yesterday there's even a bit of headroom to help the government deal with the climate crisis. Remember, it's supposed to be coming up with a nationally determined contribution, i.e. New Zealand is going to go to the Glasgow conference next month and say how much it's going to reduce its carbon emissions to try and keep the temperature from rising more than 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. Now, most people think that at the moment that's going to have to be much more aggressive than the current zero carbon uh, target, and um, the government would need to make some major changes to how we run transport, for example, or um, how we deal with electricity uh, if it's going to get anywhere near the targets that are needed. So in theory, there could be quite a bit of spending on the climate next year, although very little idea of exactly what. Now let's step back a little bit from this, though, because there are other measures in the budget that are worth looking at. I talked about the OBIGAL, uh, the operating balance excluding gains and losses. But what about the uh, operating balance? So once you put in, put back in the gains and losses from revaluations of assets. And remember, this is supposed to look a bit like a net profit number that you'd see in a normal set of company accounts. Uh, I have my doubts about whether you can really compare a government with a, com a country, sorry, with a company, but um, there is um, there's some elements of truth in it, and it certainly influences the way the government runs policy and thinks about itself. So um, when, when you look at the operating balance for 2020-21, it shows a massive surplus. Why? Because there's been big revaluations upwards in the value of the government's assets. 
right across the board from, for example, the New Zealand Superannuation Fund, which, of course, has benefited from the surge in the value of assets on stock markets, but also the value of government land. In fact, uh, we've seen a significant increase in the value of government land, particularly housing land. So when you look at uh, what we're seeing from uh, the government's books, you can see that the amount of money which has gone to the government, well, money, valuations to the government, has increased by uh, more than $40 billion over the last year. Now, that is a good chunk of that has come from the New Zealand Superfund. But when you look at land and building revaluations, the, the increase uh, this year was $30 billion in total. And that included $7.4 billion in the increase in the value of social houses, so kind order. So the, the key point here is that the government is the biggest beneficiary of the housing boom. Now, we don't think of the government as a beneficiary of the housing boom, but whenever it revalues its assets and particularly its residential land higher, that has some real effects. For example... If the government was to sell some of its land to property developers to build lots of new housing, even if it was affordable housing, it would have to sell that land at the newly revalued price higher, which would obviously make it less likely those developments would go ahead. Secondly, um, the housing markets surge this year because of a 30% rise in house prices has certainly helped spending and employment. Because the wealth effect from the housing market, remember the value of housing rose about $400 billion, that was effectively used by the Reserve Bank last year to try and prop up the economy. So the idea being, if you can push up house prices and other asset prices, then people will be more confident about their own financial futures, at least those ones who own assets, and they will be more likely to keep the economy going, keep people employed, keep spending money. And that's exactly what happened. So the housing market is now a key element of the Reserve Bank's monetary policy tools, now that it's cut interest rates to almost zero, apart from last week when it put it up from 025 to 0.5%. And uh, that's important too for the government, because remember, its role under the Public Finance Act is to minimise the debt the government has at all times, except for in a crisis. So you can use the balance sheet, you can borrow money during a crisis, like an earthquake or a global financial crisis or a pandemic. But once that's over, the Public Finance Act, passed in 1989, is designed to force government to reduce the amount of debt it has and essentially to keep the size of government around about 30% of GDP. So that's what we've done over the last 30 years, is whenever there's been... A good moment, we've used it to run budget surpluses and to repay debt. Now that um, seemed to make sense in 1989, where the main problems, as people saw it at that time, were high government foreign debt, which Robert Muldoon had accumulated with his Think Big projects, and which had um, driven the economy nearly bankrupt in 1984, in part because we had a fixed currency, and all of that debt was foreign currency debt, much of it at very short terms. And at that point, um, most people thought that New Zealand's population would be flat uh, or at least stable 
and that the main task was to reduce the size of government, its interference in the economy, and reduce, preferably through some institutional means, reduce the size of government debt and therefore the size of government. And that the real aim of government was to be smaller than it was before and to deliver tax cuts to people, which is what has happened over the last 30 or 40 years. But just like any company that bolsters its profits by not investing in new technology or new assets, effectively banking your depreciation as profits, uh, you eventually get to a point down the track where you don't, where you have poorly maintained buildings, a lack of infrastructure to do your, do your, to run your company, and effectively underinvestment will always catch up with you in the long run. That's a um, pretty common thought in uh, running businesses, and also it's accounted for in most people's balance sheets. So, for example, if you have an asset that you have um, bought and you know that over time it's going to devalue because it's going to need maintenance, we should at least be spending that devaluation or that depreciation on maintenance and if you're looking to grow your company, you need to be increasing the value of investment in your property, your plant and equipment. And on the face of it, that looks like what the government's doing. But actually, most of that increase in the value of plant and equipment, as the government sees it, is actually <laughs> revaluation higher in land prices. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? There's a lot of people in New Zealand who think they're rich and that they earn that money, but actually it's mostly revaluation higher in land prices. So why does this matter? Because the Public Finance Act drives how the government operates. And over the last 30 years, the underpinning of that Public Finance Act has meant New Zealand's government has structurally underinvested in infrastructure. And today the Infrastructure Commission came out with a big new draft report for the government saying that there was a currently an infrastructure deficit of $75 billion and that 115,000 new houses needed to be built to try to deal with the housing crisis. Effectively, the Infrastructure Commission has just called out the government for 30 years of underinvestment in infrastructure. Essentially, the Public Finance Act has enabled the last 30 years of leaders and voters and taxpayers to pull forward wealth from the future, i.e. not investing in infrastructure now that can be used in the future. That's intergenerational theft, in effect. And the Public Finance Act has enabled that. My view is that to deal with particularly the issues around climate change and housing affordability, the Public Finance Act needs to be repealed and replaced, and its current emphasis on debt reduction, with the aim of keeping interest rates and inflation low, and therefore keeping asset prices high, needs to be changed so that the emphasis is on the long-term balance sheet of the Crown, and in particular assesses the liabilities involved with uh, climate change. So for example, if we don't uh, reduce our climate emissions fast enough, at some point we're going to have to buy carbon credits from the rest of the world, and in huge numbers and at huge cost, not to mention the um, the various costs around climate change itself, with you know flooding and all of those things. 
Secondly, um, the housing crisis and the level of unaffordability and poor quality of housing is leading to continued long-term increased spending on health, on education, on justice and social welfare. So if you improved your housing affordability situation and your housing quality, then you reduce future liabilities for government spending on health, education, justice and social welfare. You also potentially increase the productivity of your uh, workers. Because at the moment we can see that a lot of people are leaving big cities like Auckland and Wellington because it's just too expensive to live there. And that is reducing the productivity of many companies and uh, means that um, you're often replacing higher skilled people leaving the country or leaving the city with lower skilled people uh, and therefore reducing productivity. And of course, unless you increase productivity, it's very difficult to sustainably increase your G GDP and therefore increase your tax revenues. So um, my view from looking at yesterday's accounts is that the government is the biggest beneficiary of the housing boom. And that's exactly how it's incentivized to work. So the government has said that, in theory, it cares about uh, the unsustainable nature of the housing market. But notably, it's stopped using the word to improve affordability. It's only talked about improving sustainability of house price inflation. So it doesn't like 30% house price inflation. The Prime Minister has talked about 4% as a more sustainable level for house price inflation, which of course means that particularly for home ownership, you would not have any increase in housing affordability in terms of house price to income ratios any time within the next 50 to 100 years. In theory, if you kept rent inflation below uh, wage inflation, you might get some improvement in rental affordability. Uh, but at the, at the moment, um, rents have risen about 50% faster than wages in the last four years. And house prices have risen six times faster than wages in the last four years. In my view, that's partly because the government itself is incentivized to keep land prices rising. And those la rising land prices uh, also act to stop new housing supply coming onto the market. Because the higher the land price, the fewer the houses get built. And the less land is sold by the government to developers to get those houses built. It's one of the reasons why KiwiBuild was such a failure. So that's um, the current uh, situation with the government's books and my suggestion for a reform and a repeal of the Public Finance Act. But what else is happening today? Obviously, we're going to find out from Cabinet this afternoon what's going to happen to Northland and Waikato, whether they'll be able to move back down to level two. There's some suggestion they might be able to, but obviously the outbreak is still going hard and getting worse. In Auckland, where the R value is more like 1.2, 1.3, which would see cases double within a month or so. And there are calls for increasingly tough boundary restrictions around Auckland to stop these sorts of um, exits and entries that we've seen legitimately and illegitimately in the last uh, few weeks. So that's what we are focused on today. Um, and... We'll also be keeping an eye on what's happening uh, with the uh, latest numbers coming out of America on inflation, which we'll get tonight, and we'll get New Zealand inflation figures next week. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was the Dawn Chorus on the Kaka. It is Wednesday, the 13th of October. <laughs>